I am so happy to be with you this morning. I'm loving this short series that we're in uh, called Let Us Worship, and we are exploring different aspects of worship. And last week, Austin talked about teaching, and today I get to talk about liturgy. And it's funny, I don't know about you, but I don't recall a lot of liturgy in the Presbyterian church that I grew up in. It may have been there, and I just don't recall it, but for a lot of people, liturgy is something other people do. And a lot of people react against liturgy because it doesn't feel like home. It it seems constraining to the Holy Spirit. And let's be honest, if you don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, it can feel a little rote and empty. And my goal is to change all of that for you today. The word liturgy means work of the people, if you look behind the Latin. And liturgy can encompass anything from an order of service to how you do communion to spoken prayers, on on and on and on. Um, Liturgy can be referred to as different things. If you're an old school Presbyterian, you might remember something called the service for the Lord's Day. If you came out of a Greek Orthodox tradition, you might think of the divine liturgy or even the liturgy of the word, which is part of the structure of a Roman Catholic mass. And while we most often think of liturgy as something that takes place within the confines of worship, like on a Sunday morning, I think liturgy takes place and forms all of life. But let me back up a second. And I want to take you to kind of where Gary was this morning in the children's time. I want to take you to Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what it says. And you probably know this already. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was... See, I knew you knew it. (laughs) Words are creative. And while I could really just stay right here in this passage, because there's so much to unpack, what I want you to see here today is that creation is brought into being through a word. God's creation by word might seem disconnected from liturgy, but hang tight just for a second, because what is liturgy ultimately? Words. And words, as I said, clearly have creative power. But you might think, well, those are God's words at the beginning, and, you know, God creates things out of nothing, and that's true. You you and I can't do that. God creates, in Latin, it's called ex nihilo. God creates out of nothing, and only God can do that. But this doesn't mean that we as human beings can't create. In fact, early on in that story, we do create. Remember the story of Adam and Eve and the first human beings? I mean, again, Gary was talking about this this morning. God creates and then gives them everything except, well, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, they disobey and God finds out. And what God says to Eve 
is important. In Genesis 3, um, chapter 3, verse 13, God asks Eve, after he has discovered everything that has gone, he turns to Eve and he says, what is this thing that you have done? Now, because of translational problems, this isn't exactly accurate. What God really says to Eve is this, what is this thing you have made? Right, the first mention of something that humans create or make comes when God asks about a world which now includes rebellion against him. Words are in play at this moment, too. Because if you track back, you see that this rebellion against the command of God happens, that God's intended kingdom is broken because of words. And it's not the words of Eve, and it's not the words of Adam, and it's not the words of God, but the words of a snake that whispers into creation. Eve did what she knew she was not to do because of words, and in doing so, caused another world to come into being. Now, in this moment in the garden, two rival kingdoms are set up. One created out of nothing, God's kingdom. The other is a, is a parasite and a caricature of the first kingdom, sort of a, uh, the first kingdom looking through a funhouse mirror. And since then, God has been undoing what was done in that moment in the garden. God has been restoring his kingdom and putting to an end what I'll call the kingdom of this world. This is all throughout Scripture. But a good example can be found in Ephesians chapter 6. When Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of Satan. And then he describes what I will call the tension between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this earth. And Paul says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And this struggle is not waged with weapons as much as it is waged with words or liturgy. Every day, day in and day out, minute by minute, we live out liturgy. We live out the words which surround us, fill us, and are said to us. The liturgy we live is the reality we live. There is a liturgy of the world, of the kingdom that is not the kingdom of heaven, and a liturgy of the kingdom of heaven. And the two things conflict. You can tell the difference between the two liturgies because the liturgy of the world creates a reality in which you live in fear because you are always in danger. The liturgy of the world creates a kingdom where you stand at the center a world which tells you that you deserve so much more than you currently have and that things are being held back from you, which is scarily exactly what the snake said to Eve. 
The liturgy of this world inconsistently tells you that you are at the center, that you deserve such and such, and almost convinces you that you are God, but at the same time, this liturgy tells you that you will never be enough, that you are not what you should be, that you are in control, and that your lack, your emptiness, and your sadness are all your fault. Because you have control of all of these things. Now, liturgy creates tremendous shame and guilt and even isolation because we hide what we don't want others to see. This is the world that most people spend the most time in. And it is reinforced, I would say even created, by a liturgy, words, which promote the kingdom of this world. I could unpack this for a long time, but maybe a few of the phrases I've picked up in the last couple of days will help you understand. Most of these come from advertisements, but they're everywhere. How about this one? Spend a little less to get a little more to make life a little better. Sounds pretty innocuous, doesn't it? But it creates a kingdom based on spending. Or what about this? Make more of what's yours. Doesn't sound like a problem, except it creates ownership and responsibility around material things and finances. And if you fail, or if you don't have anything, then that's a problem. Or how about this? You hear this all the time. Well, you, you do you. That creates a world where we are slaves to individualism. It breaks connection and isolates the individual, and it creates incredible anxiety. And I could go on and on and on. If you wonder why the world is the way it is, take a close look at the liturgy which is creating it. And once you open your eyes, you'll see it is everywhere. It is all around you, and it is getting louder every day, and it is the source of most of our current chaos. And Satan loves it. And that is why the liturgy of the kingdom of heaven, the words which bring God's reality into being, are so important. This liturgy, which definitely takes place in, in weekly worship, but also daily worship, these words that we speak, which define the reality we live in, are a practical way that we, as the people of God, those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, push back against the kingdom of this world. Did you hear me? I'm going to say it again. Because the words that we speak, which define the reality that we live in, are the practical way that we as the people of God, those who have been saved by the blood of the Lamb, who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them, push back against the darkness of the world. When we speak the words of the kingdom, the Holy Spirit speaks in us and through us. And we become these vessels that are exerting the creative power that God has infused within humanity. And I want to throw this in here because I think it's important. 
But if you go back and you look at the story in Genesis, the whole creation story, the whole fall story, the whole Adam and Eve and snake scenario, what you notice is this, that the snake apparently does not have creative powers. Even Adam do. And the snake needs Eve and Adam to listen to him and buy his lies in order for his kingdom to come into being. And when we listen to the lies and we act, his kingdom comes forward. But when we refuse to listen, when we fill that gap with the words of God, when we engage in God's creative purpose, declaring the kingdom of heaven, Satan is undone. For example, consider the call to worship. Now, we use a call to worship every week as a starting point for worship. We do that to begin to remind ourselves what is real and what is not. And when we declare with confidence who God is and what God has done, that creates a kingdom reality. The call to worship, it reorients us to the kingdom of heaven. And in today's in particular... I am the Lord and there is no other. It reminds us and strengthens us in the reality of the kingdom of God. He is the Lord, the kurios in Greek, the one who is in charge, the one who cares for us. And when we worship, we start right here, exercising our God-given creative power to push back against the kingdom of this world, a kingdom where the words of the snake still echo. When we declare the new kingdom reigned by God, we spiritually shout into the darkness that the light, as the Gospel of John puts it, that the light has come into the world and that the darkness cannot overcome it. But none of this is new. God has commanded his people from the very, very beginning to do this. Think back to what is known as the great Shema. If you have a Bible, I don't have a slide for, these, for this, but it's worth you marking in your Bibles. Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. And this is what it says. It's going to sound familiar to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These are creative words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your homes and on your gates. This is a daily liturgy. This is a liturgy that calls for remembering over and over and over again all throughout the day who God is and what God has done. It has the effect of creating an understanding of the reality of the kingdom of heaven. Or think about this, the great cry of the church on Easter, he is risen. See? That creates a reality where a dead Jesus came back to life. It speaks of the reality of the resurrection into a world where death still markets itself as the ultimate power. 
And when we bring light into the darkness, the darkness disappears. Liturgy done right declares and convinces us of a new reality here and now and still coming. And it marks in very stark contrast, black and white contrast, the difference between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. This morning we're going to take a look at Psalm 136 and we're going to put it up on the screen. And what I want to do, I'm going to read the beginning part of it, but you're going to read the refrain, which is, his love endures forever. So I'll start. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and the stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. And brought Israel out from among them. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness, to him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as an inheritance. An inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. He gives give thanks to the God of heaven. Do you get it? God is rescuer, God is provider, God is all-powerful, God is involved. God is more powerful than any king in your life or any threatening force that may be standing on the outside. Why? You know. His love endures forever. It creates a reality. We claim the reality of God's power in the world through these words. I am not saying that we are creating it by saying it. What I am saying is we are claiming it by saying it. Now I'm running out of time up here, but quickly think about how the prayer of confession and assurance of pardon create a reality. How the acknowledgement of our sin and the declaration that it 
is forgiven creates a world where we are not held guilty, where we are not told that we should be full of shame, but where we are loved, where we are forgiven, where we are freed to love in return. Instead of a world filled with anxiety because we're hiding the fact that we are not who we are supposed to be, we admit the truth. I ain't great, but love finds me anyway. And it's not because of my goodness which I know is a lie. It's because of God's goodness. And we see God's goodness in every blade of grass, in every tree, and every peace-filled moment. Now, I know most of the time we think a liturgy is just a few words we mumble through at the start of a worship service. Yes, I have sat where you sit. But as you've heard... There's so much more than that. I was thinking about our vision statement that we exist to be missionaries of Christ in our local communities so that our neighborhoods reflect the kingdom of heaven. What more practical and important way is there to do that than to live out that liturgy that declares the kingdom of heaven on your street or in your workplace or in your family? And so I want to leave you with one idea for liturgy that you can do every day as the chance arises. Now, the idea comes from The Chosen. Some of you may have watched this. It's a series on the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, And you may have noticed, if you watched that, that there is a blessing or prayer that comes up fairly often. Um, And the beginning of it sounds something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe. Right? And then something else is said, like, for you bring forth bread from the earth and feed the hungry. Now, I did a little bit of research on that, and this is actually an ancient Hebrew blessing, especially this blessing blessing of the bread. Um, This usually was done on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, but it is a reminder of, of God's goodness in providing the people with manna. It's actually a connection back to the story of Exodus. And that's another thing that liturgy does that I don't have time to unpack, but it also connects us with the saints who have gone before and the saints who will be in front of us. Now, in Hebrew, this blessing sounds a little bit like this. If you are a Hebrew scholar, please excuse my Hebrew. Barak atah Adonai Eloheinu Malek Ha'alom the reason I tell you that is to not wow you with my terrible Hebrew, but so that you can feel the connection with people all over the world and people who have come before us and people who will come after us in this very long and powerful story that God has us standing in the middle of this. But the beginning of this prayer or blessing can be used in a lot of other circumstances like this. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who puts kind people in my path when I need them. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who allows the sunshine, who creates beautiful skies. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who speaks in holy thunder. 
Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who allows us to attend weddings and see the union of two people that looks like the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. Those are words that are spoken at a Shabbat table, at a Sabbath table, and that connects us to Passover, which connects us to the Exodus, which eventually connects us to the cross and the resurrection and the coming of God's kingdom. It's all one piece. And so for you today, I would just end with this question. I've been asking this question for a week. What would make your life today look a little bit more like the kingdom of heaven? What would it be? Think about that and then look for it because as you look for it, here's what you're going to find. 10,000 other things that you can say, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, for you created choirs who sing beautifully. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who gathers people in your name and then sends them out with the good news of your kingdom. Would you pray with me?